This is an ABC podcast. Burn them. Just burn them. Yes, this week, thanks to Europe, there's a pretty good chance you can get rid of a bunch of wires that you no longer need. But please don't burn them. That's probably bad for the environment. The real question, though, is which wires and when can you get rid of them? Also, would you pay to not be tracked online? And we take a deep dive into the potential new regulations around facial recognition. All of that and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed. It is a brand new episode of Download This Show. Yes, I turned it into a jingle again. I don't know why I kept doing that. Um, Ariel Bogle from the ABC RN Science Unit. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Mark. Good to be here. And joining us from Melbourne, Amy Bainbridge with Bloomberg. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Hello. So... When you log on to the internet these days, inevitably, as soon as you open up that browser, it's tracking you. It's tracking what you do, what you look like, what you look like, (laughs) what you're looking at and where you go. But would you ever consider downloading a totally different browser on the promise of it not tracking you? Ariel, this is now a thing that you can do. Well, I already thought I was sort of doing that by using (laughs) Firefox, uh, if people are aware of that browser. So, of course, so depending on what uh, sort of hardware you're using, that typically comes with a kind of automatic browser, you know, Safari, there's Google Chrome, of course, but there has been Firefox, which has already billed itself as a kind of privacy protective browser option. But the new one on the block is called Neva and comes from a former Google employee who wanted to sort of move away from what he called the exploitation of people's data and so a browser that's really anti-tracker, I suppose. So those little cookies that are put into your browser when you visit one website and follows you to the next for advertising, for analytics, for just info about you for advertising, et cetera. Mm. Amy, you spent uh, quite a long time as, a, as a, kind of really diving into the world of being a consumer reporter. Do you think most consumers are aware of how much they are being tracked online? Look, there's probably, I mean, even after the last couple of weeks, I think there's there's probably a heightened level of personal data at the moment. But no, overall, I think people don't really realise when they're using a service for free, be it a social media site or something like this, that you are actually the product. Um, Figures from my own news organisation show that people are using Google to search more than 2 trillion times per year, you know, and it's just become such a a term that we just use, I'm going to Google something. So it's become sort of culturally entrenched in the way people operate online and I think sometimes we become so familiar with it that people actually kind of Mm. forget that you are part of the product and a system. Yeah, and I guess the, 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 the classic phrase with Google is it's the noun that became a verb, right? I think that's the true marker of success as a tech company. <laughs> it's when, you, when it stops being a noun and it starts becoming a verb. I guess the, the, the thing whenever this story, and, and there's different things that have launched over the years um, that promise to not track you, um, and there's been different sort of suggestions of social media companies like a Facebook that doesn't track you and things like that. And I guess the thing none of them really ever crack through, Ariel. <laughs> and I'm trying to work out why that might be. Is it, is it simply because the convenience and the ubiquity of the major players is, is so big? Or, or, or is there ever going to be a time where this does become 
enough of a selling point that people jump over that line? It's a good question. I think in general, people are just using what the default option is that pops up when they open the browser on a new laptop or computer or the phone, they'll go, they'll just use whatever's first presented. And so it really depends which sort of relationships the hardware you're using have with those browsers and what they set up as the default. It's important to note though, that I think uh, Safari too, that comes with most Apple products is also um, sort of cracking down on trackers too. So some of those major browser players are already getting into this game because they recognise that consumer demand for it. It's also um, really hurting Facebook, which I think Apple does <laughs> would be probably uh, Apple seems a, to ex- a side bonus yeah, potentially. A, Apple seems to extract actual pleasure from that. <laughs> Is there, I mean, Amy, when you log on, and I know a couple of news organisations have done this, if you were to log on to Neva versus Google versus any number of these other services. Is there much of a material difference in the results that you get? I mean, because I think that would be the other thing, right? I think there's a sense, uh, perhaps rightly or wrongly, that Google, again, because of its sheer size, is the best at search engines. But is that actually true, Amy? Yeah, well, obviously, it's a very powerful search engine. And of course, I have run a little test ahead of talking to you about this today. So, for example, and you'll think this is funny, because I've had different results on my work computer as I have on my home laptop, which kind of shows, I guess, what's been tracking me, um, you know, at home versus work. Um, So, you know, I Googled, for example, superannuation, right? That's my beat at Bloomberg. If I Google that versus Neva at the moment, um, so Neva will come up with, you know, kind of the top hit is information from the government, Um, the ATO, which is, of course, what you would hope. But uh, if I'm Googling from my home computer, there's a whole bunch of um, superannuation funds that come up the top. So immediately that user experience is very different. I think also like people, I, I, I don't know, I mean, Ariel's right, you know, will people switch? And at the moment the headline partly is fueled by the fact that it is a former Google executive that set this up. So that's creating more intrigue around, you know, that the headlines that that it's creating as well. So I think that's that's going to fuel some interest. But as for the long-term sustainability, he has said that, you know, it will be a subscription model. Um, but at the moment, some of the reporting suggests that the numbers in the states where it launched earlier are, are pretty strong. So I guess we'll have to wait and see whether it really does change consumer behaviour and whether people like that new search experience that they're getting because it does look a bit different to what you used to. There's also that sense of inter, um, integration as well, though. I think part of what's happened in the last sort of 20 years of the internet is that search engines really aren't just, I mean, Google is is not just a search engine and it hasn't been for a long time. It's it's so integrated with so many other devices and so many other services. It's the extra, it's the extrication of that uh, search process from, from all the other Google products that people likely use that I think might might be another one of those things to contend with in terms of competition, right? Yeah, and how much people are used to at this point, the kind of curated results you get with Google. Um, so if you search like a car wash on, you search car wash on Google, you'll probably get uh, the top results will be an sort of advertising that directing you to car washes near you if you're letting it understand where you are in Australia or wherever you are. Um, you know, maybe some sort of curated results that based on places you've been before, especially if you have, um, are using Google maps and you've integrated that with your sort of Google ID on your browser. There's all these other additional, for some creepy, for some helpful, (laughs) um, extra services that come with Google. Whereas if you search car wash on Neva, 
it's sort of giving you pretty oblique results at this point. Yeah. And I guess, Amy, that is the thing. I mean, it, it always does come back to that, that sort of, I mean, you can call it a, a balancing act or a tension between convenience versus privacy, right? This, this sense of like, it's very, very easy for it to, to tell me all the things I want it to do, but, but in the service of that, you, you do essentially have to sacrifice some degree of privacy, don't you? At least, at least with the current, you know, major offerings available to us, Amy. Yeah, and I think what I've found surprising at some points is, is it takes something like this to stop and check and go and think how much have I been leaning into this without really thinking about how much of my own personal information and profiling I'm handing over. So I think this does at least give us pause for, for thought around some of those issues, you know, how much are you um, allowing yourself to be tracked and, and balancing that, of course, against the convenience too, which is, as you rightly point out, a, a tricky tricky kind of balance there. Mm. Download the show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And right now, when it comes to laws around facial recognition technology around Australia, uh, they've been described as a as a wild west. <laughs> There's variable, uh, sort of variable laws available to you from different parts of the country. But now there's a plan potentially to change that, Ariel. Talk me through it. Yeah, this is a proposal that's come out of UTS. Uh, they, some um, academics there at the Human Technology Institute have proposed a, a model law. Basically, they want the Attorney General in Australia, Mark Dreyfus, to take up this model they've proposed and move forward with it to start regulating facial recognition in Australia at a federal level. So at the moment, it is kind of a hodgepodge of laws as ever with technology in Australia. Probably the dominant financial, uh, the dominant federal law that has something to say about this is the Privacy Act. Mm. There are rules in the Privacy Act about collecting biometric information. So that's like information about people's faces, bodies, etc. But really where we see facial recognition being used is by police, in shopping centres, in retail, um, in schools even. And so when it comes to governing that kind of use, there's very little the law has to say about it at the moment. So that's the sort of purpose, the sort of hole they're hoping to plug with this proposed law, which doesn't actually seek to ban facial recognition outright, but instead kind of takes a risk model, a three-tiered approach. You know, is this how risky is this use of facial recognition? It would require whoever is um, seeking to use facial recognition in their premise or in their place of work or for the purposes of law enforcement to first assess, sort of make a risk assessment of how what the kind of impacts of that use of facial recognition might have. So if, if it's in law enforcement, obviously the bar is extremely high because the risk of something going wrong is false imprisonment for, you know, really high consequences, but there might be sort of lower consequences as you go down. But interestingly, it also seeks to have the people that create facial recognition or seek to sell it in Australia make those same risk assessments. So, Ariel, then, like, does it distinguish between, like, a public place, like a park versus, uh, like, a shopping mall? Does it, gi- does it give different primacy to those environments? It, de- it definitely, in, that terms, in terms of making that risk assessment about how the facial recognition system would be rolled out or deployed... It would that kind of question would definitely be taken into account. So, for example, if a workplace wants to use facial recognition technology to understand who's in the office at a particular time, that would also raise a level of risk because it's not something workers could really have a choice about. Um, so, 
I think it's it, there's not a blanket rule about inside outside, but it's more about a rule about consent or no consent, and that kind of comes into the risk level. And what I think is also really interesting about this proposed model is that all these risk assessments would have to be uh, public, filed with the uh, with a regulator. At the moment, the regulator, which regulator that might be, is a bit unclear. It could be the privacy commissioner. It could be a new body. But the fact that these uh, pri- these assessments would be public would let people assess them for themselves, potentially challenge them, audit them, and that's a level of transparency that we have none of at the moment when it comes to the use of facial recognition technology in Australia. Amy, I mean, how does this compare to the laws in other parts of the world? I think that there's this growing recognition that that facial recognition... Um, for, ah, for that's what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> ..that... You know, like there are more and more companies um, that demand this kind of identification and some of the reporting out of the states is sort of raising questions about, about what happens when more companies start processing and storing faces over time. And there's some organisations, say, in the US that have, you know, have looked at the number of databases containing these so-called face prints and how they're growing. And, you know, will they eventually start sharing facial data with others to be analysed in the same way that, say, ad networks um, might exchange reams of personal data for ad targeting today. So I think, you know, this this story that, that Ariel has reported is if we look to the future a little more, I mean, that they're the, the big issues that we kind of in Australia are looking to address now before we get too much further down that path. I really have, yeah, just to echo what Amy's saying there, that the whole chain of facial recognition is messy from beginning to end. If you, Even if you go back to the very start, a few years ago, I um, reported out this story about some of the databases on which facial recognition sort of systems, algorithms are trained on, full stop. Mm. So basically to create a facial recognition system, you need you, to train it on faces. You need vast amounts of faces. You need that data set. You need the data set. And so there were many questions at that time being raised about the ethics of the original data sets on which most major facial recognition systems are trained. There was a really famous one from Tsinghua University in Beijing, which seemed to have been collected just from passing students that were walking past a particular camera. There was a similar one at Duke, which eventually um, got pulled and the sort of people involved with that um, got uh, some sort of level of reprimand because they it was considered that they hadn't obtained full and complete consent from the people whose faces were captured. There were data sets being scraped from Flickr. You might remember that That's photo right, sharing yeah. site. I just the you idea know. of like people not getting consent for for facial recog- to build a data set for facial recognition technology about cameras that will inevitably end up in public spaces where you wouldn't be able to give consent in the first one. Like, it's like there's something quite circular about that, isn't there? Yeah, the, as I said, like the whole the whole thing is completely messy and I think it's particularly messy in Australia because we haven't had the chance to fully debate out whether we really want to give as a society consent to the use of this technology full stop. That public conversation has really been missing and as Choice found earlier this year when facial recognition gets rolled out at Bunnings or a Kmart, you know, there's very little that people ha- can um, sort of very little way for people to weigh into that as customers of those places. And I guess in some ways, Amy, that's really the the thing that comes out of stories like this, which is ho- hopefully we actually do start to have a conversation about okay, this technology exists, it's ubiquitous. What is the line? Like, what is the line that we are comfortable with as a community? That that surely, as I guess it, you'd have to say, probably one of the best. Well, best case, the the, the guaranteed outcomes of, of, of news like this, I mean. I think, 
Absolutely. And, you know, that that story by Choice, um, the consumer group Choice, a couple of months ago about major retailers using facial recognition was really quite shocking. It got quite incredible traction across the media spectrum because I think people just did not realise that this was a thing, that you could be, you know, uh, have your face picked up walking into a major retailer. I mean, who kind of knew? Uh, you might recall a couple of years ago, Matthew Carney did uh, quite an extraordinary documentary on on facial recognition and the technological leaps that were, had been made um, in China and how it was being used within the population there. And I think, as Ariel kind of pointed out, we haven't really had those conversations here. And it's kind of taken that reporting or the, those um, the advocacy, rather, I should say, from from choice to kind of point this out and say, hey, is this something we we're comfortable with? And if so, how is it going to work in our society? Because I think consumers largely hadn't kind of been really aware of that presence of technology here in Australia. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guest this week, Amy Bainbridge, uh, Bloomberg reporter, and Ariel Bogle, reporter with the ABC RN Science Unit. Mark Fennell is my name. And Spotify have gone very heavily in on podcasts in the last couple of years. Um, Of course, the big one is their investment in Joe Rogan, which uh, has not been without controversy. There's been an increased focus on their ability to moderate content uh, and whether or not it's... uh, passes muster in terms of facts and whatnot, and they've they've made a fairly big acquisition in the last week, uh, Amy, with the hopes, I guess, of improving their ability to moderate. Talk me through what's happened. Yeah, it's really interesting. So, I mean, earlier this year, at the start of this year, of course, Spotify was copying a lot of criticism. There were some really big names that had music on their, their platform, on their music streaming service, that were very unhappy about what was going on with their um, podcasting service, which has kind of been brought in and grown to supplement um, its its music side of things. Um, the number of podcasts on Spotify now is like 3 million shows over the past few years. And the company has been having trouble with misinformation and really that's where most of that criticism has stemmed from. And of course, that Joe Rogan um, podcast around, you know, um, questioning questions around and COVID-19 has been one of the key examples of that. So now what they've done is they've acquired a an Irish company which sort of helps to verify um, content, basically. It uses machine learning to analyse content and it does it not just in English. It does it across a whole bunch of different languages um, and that is an acquisition. So this is, I guess, the latest step. You know, they've, they've put out various things. They've um, reviewed um, their, their standards over the last couple of months and they've set up committees to do it. But this now is an acquisition um, and saying, and they've said in their press release, that their advanced technology and deep expertise will really help the service. So I guess, you know, <laughs> it's really hoping it will avoid some of that misinformation getting onto its platforms and also avoid criticism of major artists, which is a huge PR problem. Is there a sense of exactly how they do this, Ariel? It's a great question, actually, because audio moderation has been a huge challenge um, for a lot of platforms, not just Spotify, but all the major uh, podcast providers. Uh, You've got Apple in the mix, you've got Google, you've got Pocket Cast, you've got a whole range of platforms in addition to Spotify. I actually did a story uh, on podcast misinformation back in 2020 as a sidebar, (laughs) and I don't think I've ever gotten so much abuse on Twitter. Really? Made people very mad. Something about 
podcast COVID-19 misinformation really um, sparked it off. But Did not have I that on my 2020 <laughs> bingo card of things that make people, you know, mad on Very the internet. mad. I digress. But in that story back then in 2020, it was really clear from the people I spoke to in this space that audio moderation was a huge challenge, how to do it. It's not... Obviously, the machine learning kind of tools that would pick up sort of key terms associated with hate speech or vilifying words, that, that's how the kind of mod- automatic moderation might happen on a Facebook where the words are in text. It cannot easily be just moved over to audio. It's a completely different kind of format. Mm. So it is kind of I'm curious about how Kinzen really does this work, just uh, trawling through their website trying to understand how the technology works. They do say they generate um, audio transcriptions. So perhaps they're in some cases turning audio into text so they can moderate it and then so they can look for these kind of keywords, phrases, sentiment that might trigger a kind of warning and then somebody goes to verify. I'm just (laughs) wildly speculating there. Download this show is the name of the program. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And if you have a phone in front of you right now, I want you to look at the charging wire. If the phone you have is an iPhone, there's a reasonable chance that that charging wire is going to change in the next couple of years. And you can thank or blame, depending on your point of view, Europe. Amy, what's happened? (laughs) I think we will thank them, perhaps just not in the transition period, um, Mark. It's just like another wire. There's another wire in my life. Sorry, carry on, Amy. You know, everyone's been in that position where you've been scratching around to find a charger, right? And, you know, for the people that don't upgrade or do upgrade and then you've got an old charger and a new charger, I mean, there's a huge, I mean, of course it's a pain from a consumer concern, but this is a huge environmental issue too when you talk about wastage. Um, so, look, if we look to the EU and the European Parliament, rather, they have voted to force companies like Apple um, to adapt products that don't already feature this, you know, USB-C charger to use one. And so, of course, in, in Apple's case, that includes iPhones. And look, <laughs> the European Parliament, were they, they were really up for this, 602 versus 13 with eight people abstaining. So there you go. It's uh, emphatic over there. Um, it's something that sort of been in the works for a while and originally Apple had said that it would reduce innovation but then um, one of my, <laughs> I know. Sorry. I'm sorry, every time I hear, because like, we talked about what it was uh, what it was first muted and that argument still, I still find it amusing. I know, it, and look, it is, but uh, as some of my colleagues reported that they, they did say that but then they went off and started testing future iPhone models. So I guess they saw the writing was on the wall. But just what's been just... Um, decided in Europe is that by 2024, by autumn of 2024, all phones and tablets sold in Europe um, will have to comply with this new rule and then laptops will take a little bit longer to make the switch, I guess, because of, you know, the life duration of those. Um, And then they're also going to be able to set standards for wireless charging too in the future. And I think we can pretty confidently say, and I know from my past consumer reporting, that trends that happen in Europe often um, reverberate in Australia at some point. It can take years and sometimes quicker. So we'll be interesting to see what happens here. So just to describe it, if you haven't um, encountered it yet, USB-C is a little bit like, it actually is, it's it's smaller and thinner than the standard USB that you may be familiar with, but slightly bigger than a, a, a lightning connector, which is what most iPhones are connected to now. And if you own a newer Apple laptop, you're already being charged by USB-C. 
uh, in order to charge your phone off that laptop, you need a USB-C to learn it. You know what? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm dying of boredom even just describing it. How many dongles do you own? Oh, my God, so many. So many dongles. <laughs> uh, this is my own personal pain. I mean, the idea of standardising things so that wires are reusable, that you can connect multiple devices with a single wire, is in the long run going to be helpful, surely, Ariel? I couldn't love this more. Okay. Okay, okay, okay. this is good, this is good. Um, yes. Just, I mean, if I just think through your house and if, the drawers. So many wires. I just, I'm, think, I'm just looking, thinking about my bedside table. I'm thinking about the filing cabinet. I'm thinking about like the basket of wires I brought back from when I lived in the United States just in case, you know, it, it would be really lovely in many ways to have one that worked across multiple devices beyond needing your Apple, your Apple basket and your, you know, Samsung basket and your maybe your Kindle or Kobo basket. They, they all require different charges and it really is getting too much. So what's the timeline on this, Amy? So, uh, I mean, obviously we have a, a European timeline, but Europe is <clears throat> big and uh, one would assume that it changes the shape of particularly Apple and other major uh, hardware producers' pipeline of hardware. Do we know when it's likely to become a change that kind of trickles down for the rest of us? Yeah, I mean, very difficult to say. I guess in some ways it all depend how much of an appetite that he's, he is here in Australia to, to follow that lead. But, I mean, changes like this can take a really long time. In 2024, when you think about it, you know, it's really not that far away. So it's actually reasonably quick. And that, I guess that's why Apple was reportedly um, doing these trials in May this year. So they, they know because, you know, you've got a lot of issues around supply chains, design and all that kind of thing. But, yeah, typically, you know, obviously Australia is often behind on consumer-led issues. Um, Europe is often seen as being well at the forefront of these things. So really, as I said, I guess it depends whether there's anyone here that really wants to to take that up as a, you know, as a, a challenge for Australia and to see a similar thing happen to you. I mean, I know that consumer groups and authorities often look to what's happening in Europe to see, you know, how things can be adapted here. And they also regularly talk to, you know, other consumer bodies over there just to see how things were achieved. So, yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting development, I think. But I'd say just the sheer size of Europe would dictate that I would imagine that, you know, they've just announced a new iPhone. My prediction is the next one after that. That's uh, and come come back to me in two years' time if I if I happen to be wrong. And does anyone does anyone care to take my bet? <laughs> well, I guess I we'll, like the idea. we'll find out whether all the old technology gets dumped in Australia, won't we? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I kind of like the idea too of Apple like making the rest of the world keep changing charges and this, this pure island of single single cords <laughs> in Europe. I just love the idea of like Europe just like in a sea of wires that no longer need to be used. All right, well, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. And with that, I shall leave you a huge thank you to our guest this week, Amy Bainbridge from Bloomberg. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you. So good to be here. And Ariel Bogle, reporter with the ABC RN Science Unit. A pleasure as always. Thanks, Mark. And with that, thank you for listening to another episode of Download This Show. I'll catch you next week. Goodbye.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.